according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Jeremiah. And today brings us to Jeremiah chapter 41. Jeremiah chapter 41, continuing our roller coaster through the book of Jeremiah, one chapter per Sunday. It just seems like we've been here for 300 years. Uh, We've had 66 weeks of Isaiah, followed by 41 weeks of Jeremiah. And so that's a couple years worth right there. We have been in the prophets for a while um, as far as that goes, but we are approaching the end. The, uh, The light is at the end of the tunnel. And we can see it from here, as uh, Jeremiah only has 52 chapters, and uh, we're in 41 here today. In the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, son of Elishama, of the royal family, and one of the chief officers of the king, along with ten men, came to Mizpah to get Eliah. Uh, they were eating bread together there in uh, Mizpah. And Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the ten men who were with him arose and struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, with a sword and put to death the one whom the king of Babylon had appointed over the land. And if you were with us last week, you know that uh, he was warned about this, that uh, there was an alert that was given related to the assassination mission of Ishmael, and he blew it off. He didn't believe it. He ignored it. And uh, this morning we'll see that he pays the price for not paying attention to the warning that he had been given. All right, before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon the Father to bless our time of study and humble ourselves. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your truth, calling upon your faithfulness. And Father, it is your faithfulness that glorifies your Son on this day and every day. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake, for your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, for your faithfulness to teach us all things, even the deep things of God. I thank you that our study this morning does not depend on how smart we are to figure these things out. But it depends on how faithful you are to lead us in these, in these great truths. I pray that we would be uh, uh, humble as we study, that we would view it not just as ancient history and boring dates and deaths and things, but, Father, the recognition that there is tremendous application to be made, and we must be mindful of the whole counsel of the Word of God. So bless our time of study on this day. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. I just realized I failed to print my notes. So I have no paper notes. That's all right. I'll just follow the slideshow and we'll see what comes up. Um, we're dealing with the price that's paid. Gedaliah paid the price for his gullibility. And you know me, I like alliteration. And so Gedaliah the gullible is a good uh, way to remember that. And uh, he did not believe the warning that was given. And uh, although the text doesn't say why he didn't believe, he chose not to believe. Uh, perhaps he has background with Ishmael. Perhaps he has prejudice against Jonathan or Yohanan. Uh, it doesn't exactly say why. And sometimes uh, there is no reason. Sometimes uh, we, we accept what we accept or we reject what we uh, reject. And there is no rational reason for any of it. It's just a personal preference. It's a taste. It's a feeling. 
it's uh, it's a like or a dislike. And certain people, you just have a natural dislike for them, and you just don't believe what they tell you. And uh, and you learn later on that you should have. All right, you learn later on that maybe you should have overcome that personal dislike and listened to what's being said because this could be God's tool in in God's hands to warn you of something that that you should be paying attention to. But here we see that he pays the price. And so not just him, everyone with him. We read verses 1 and 2 already. Uh, This party of 10, if you will, or 11, uh, Ishmael plus his 10, uh, his escort uh, that he's here with. And they're going to use the setting of a meal where everything appears to be peaceful and friendly and, and, uh, and so forth, and he uses that occasion then to execute the, uh, the assassination mission that he'd been given. And uh, this is what we're dealing with, all right? Verse 3, Ishmael also struck down all the Jews who were with him, that is, with Gedaliah at Mizpah. So his household, his family, his, his, uh, his, uh, all the Jews who were with him, uh, assigned there by the Babylonians, as well as the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians. Remember, there, we, we, those terms are used interchangeably. The Chaldeans who were found there, the men of war. And so, if you've been part of the study of the last couple of weeks, you realize that Jerusalem has been destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar left Gedaliah in charge of the remnant, of the rabble, if you will, and uh, but also assigned him some uh, some Babylonian officers, some soldiers, to keep an eye on things, you know, minders, if you will, observers, or whatever the case may be, effectively spies for Nebuchadnezzar himself, agents of Babylon, so that if any whiff of rebellion comes up, then they can report it and uh, it can be dealt with. And uh, them being killed here as well is a declaration of war. In fact, just killing Gedaliah is a declaration of war. The assassination of the appointed governor is enough for the Babylonians to come back and just wipe out everybody else. And uh, the, uh, the consequences there are what we're looking at. All right. So in this, I find it interesting. There was a supper <clears throat> supplied a surprise situation. A supper supplied a surprise situation. And uh, this happens a lot. In fact, it's kind of a theme in literature and different movies and different venues whereby you think you're sitting down to a, a, a meal in fact, it violates the ancient world's customs of hospitality and so forth. If you are breaking bread with somebody, then that, there, was, there were expectations of safety and fellowship and, and blessings just by partaking of the bread. And uh, in, in particular, if it's sanctified at the beginning of the meal, then there is a deity that's watching over the process. Okay? I'm talking about a pagan mindset. Forget a, a biblical mindset, right? We, uh, we begin our meals, of course, with grace, and we thank God for the food and so forth. And in a sense, then, it's sanctified, and he's watching over us as we partake and, and fellowship together. Well, that's not, that's not unique to Christians. That's not unique to believers. In the pagan world, they too would give you know, glory and credit to their deities for providing and calling upon their deities to witness. And so the idea, then, that you're going to break faith at a venue such as a meal and bring them to harm, or you're going to lure them in with a meal and then kill them, is, uh, is in a sense, it's, it's blasphemy. It's, it's to defile the God that, that is watching over the proceedings. And so it's unthinkable to Babylonians, it's unthinkable to uh, Ammonites, it's unthinkable to uh, Romans or Greeks or the ancient world in this, uh, in this sense. 
And yet this is what happens. He uses the occasion of the meal while everyone's maybe a little tipsy or relaxed or what have you. And then uh, ten men with hidden weapons can do a lot of damage before uh, the rest of the people can get uh, into a defense type of thing. So uh, here's what happens, all right? And he strikes with a sword. There's a lot of S's in, this, uh, in these verses. And there's a lot of SH's in the coming verse. Uh, there's a lot of shh, 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 that takes place in the verses that follow, which is, to me, hilarious. Because I don't know if this was the case in the ancient world or not, but when we go shh, shh, shh we're trying to shut people up. We're trying to be quiet. We're trying to be sneaky. And, uh, and so we have some verses coming up where... Ishmael is trying to cover his tracks and, and there's too many witnesses. And he keeps having to kill more and kill more. There's 80 that are going to come through town here. He's going to have to kill all of them to, to try to cover his tracks and, and make his escape back to, uh, to Ammon. So uh, supper is what supplied the situation. Now it's interesting, betrayal with a kiss or betrayal at a meal uh, these things we find in the scriptures, we find them in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. They are themes that actually get brought into pagan literature as well. They get brought into modern entertainment as well. You get plot twists even in you know modern things, uh, movies and, and series and so forth. Famous uh, wedding massacres or famous uh, other meal type assassinations. All right, makes me want to start watching The Godfather again or some of these. <clears throat> some of these uh, old movies. Anyway, betrayal with a kiss or at a meal is often the most severe. And betrayal hurts anyway. You know, by definition, betrayal is somebody you trusted that, that turns out to be the villain, right? Someone that turns out they said they loved you, but they hate you. And, and so any betrayal is going to hurt. But the venue that they choose and the, the situation where it happens oftentimes is just so hurtful in, uh, in that effect. And so I think we're accustomed to these, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 20 uh, in the Old Testament, <clears throat> Luke 22 in the New Testament. I think we're familiar with both of these, but just in case we can look at them. Not to spend a ton of time. I'm also going to try to judiciously save my voice <laughs> and make it to uh, the end of the hour. 2 Samuel 20. Maybe in the month of January, what I need to do is turn to a passage and then assign a volunteer from the audience to read the verses out loud. Handle it like I handle uh, Sunday school or something. <clears throat> but here in 2 Samuel chapter 20, um, and here's an assassination that takes place. Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. All right. And uh, the unsuspecting tragedy of it. Amasa was not on guard against the sword, which was in Joab's left hand. All right. So uh, he struck him in the belly with it and poured out his inward parts on the ground and did not strike him again. And he died. In other words, it was just a single thrust assassination. And there it was. And so Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And uh, there's the rest. All right. So Amasa lay wallowing in his blood. And uh, exciting stuff there. Yeah, we've got a lot of bloodshed coming up this morning, so just stay tuned. Uh, Luke 22. And of course, this one we're very familiar with because this is Judas betraying Jesus. And he comes to kiss him. And Jesus says, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Is this the, you know, the kiss of death, as they call it? So... Um, 
This had previously been the arrangement between Judas and the officers. Uh, the one whom I kissed, this is the one. And uh, this is what happened. So in Luke twenty-two forty-seven, while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them and approached Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? See, he knows every step of the way. He told him the night before when he dipped his hand, the bread in the bowl. He told Judas, he says, the one who dips with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. Judas knew that Jesus was fully aware of, of his betrayal. And he does so anyway. And so those who were around him saw what was going to happen. They said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And this is where Peter grabs his sword and decides to wage war all by himself, right? Peter, here's Peter going to single-handedly destroy the entire Roman Empire with, uh, with that. But anyway, Jesus puts a stop to it and he submits. This is the volitional uh, death of Jesus Christ. He is willing to submit to the Father's will for his betrayal, for his arrest, for his crucifixion, because that's where the work of our redemption is going to take place. The cross is the altar of his sacrifice, and he has to go to that cross. And these things are just uh, amazing to me as we, as we see Scripture combining with Scripture and we see these details come together. So there's betrayal with a kiss. There's betrayal at a meal. Jesus had both, of course. Um, the uh, Psalm 41 addresses the betrayal at a meal and the, the tragedy of it in David's uh, anguish. David had such sweet fellowship with Ahithophel, such sweet fellowship with Absalom. And so this rebellion, when David loses his throne, and Ahithophel is the counselor who, who advises Absalom and how to bring about this rebellion, is just horrendous. Psalm 41 and verse 9. Um, I could read all nine verses here, I suppose. And then uh, the four after that, read a whole 13-verse psalm. But um, you'll notice he's leaving himself in the grace of God. What a pattern for all of us. So verse 4, As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. And, and, And David admits a lot of what he's got coming to him is divine discipline consequences for what he did. And uh, my enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? If there's a long line of people waiting for you to die and hoping it's today, that's, that's not fun. I mean, who wants to be betrayed like that? When he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to, him, to itself. And when he goes outside, he tells it. And so here's a spy. Here's a traitor. Here's a betrayer. But when he comes face to face with David, is all friendly and lovey-dovey and whatever. But when he goes outside, the real story comes out. And the betrayal, he's, he's gathering his henchmen. He's gathering the, the, hate, the haters. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt, saying a wicked thing is poured out upon him that when he lies down, he will not rise up again. And so they've selected the time that it's going to happen. And then verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And we have the testimony of this here. And the fellowship, when you go from the most intimate of fellowship to the betrayal, that hurts. 
And this is obviously this is what David had to deal with. And, and, and he's right in the sense that his betrayal of Uriah, the adultery with Bathsheba, the, uh, the consequences there, um, he himself is, is reaping the divine discipline consequences of his own carnality. All right. So, yes, he's being betrayed, but is it not a follow-up to his own betrayal? Bathsheba was Ahithophel's granddaughter. All right. Do you think that made a difference? Do you think Ahithophel felt betrayed? And uh, not, not justifying, of course, what he did, but at least it's understandable when you see the betrayal that Ahithophel feels with his own granddaughter and then uh, the, the motivation then to support Absalom and uh, the, uh, the, the overthrow of, of the Davidic throne. Daniel chapter 11. Now this one is completely unrelated, but it is also a... Uh, illustration of a mealtime betrayal. All right, Daniel, chapter 11. If I'm not careful, I'll get stuck in this chapter for the entire hour. It's a powerful chapter. It's a great prophetic chapter looking forward to the coming tribulation. All right, uh, so without getting ensnared, um, yeah. <laughs> All right. So Daniel chapter 11, and we've got um, so much in this, but just looking at verses uh, 26 and 27, this is uh, a tremendous uh, spotlight on Antiochus Epiphanes, the great Antichrist prototype from the ancient world, All right, from the, the Maccabean era. And this guy was, was despicable. And we're told that in verse 21. In his place a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship had not been conferred. He will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. And this describes the, historically what did happen when Antiochus uh, took the throne. And, uh, you know, how do you follow the shoes of someone greater than you when you don't deserve to be there? And uh, just horrible things then. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered. Also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception. So uh, he's going to be a, a traitor against the Jewish people. Uh, what? Not, not surprising, right? Because isn't that what Antichrist is going to do in the tribulation? So we shouldn't be shocked that the Antichrist prototype uh, does the very same thing. He practices deception. He goes up and gains power with a small force of people. In, uh, in a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm. He will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. He will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and, and courage against the king of the south with a large army so that the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. And here's where he falls. He falls the same way that he rose, with intrigue, with betrayal, with assassination. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. And as for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. But it will not succeed. (laughs) What happens? I mean, Hollywood could devise a plot like this, maybe, where, you know, they're both at the same dinner table. They both have the same, they have 
opposing assassination plots that are ready to be sprung. Well, which one gets sprung first? All right? You know, because they're both at the same dinner table. They're both spewing the same, the same lies. They're both intent on, uh, on the betrayal. But the end is still to come at the appointed time. Anyway, there's, there's more on that. History records this. Josephus records this. Uh, the Maccabees record this. It's fascinating what happens when the hand of God delivers the Jewish people from the Seleucids to the north or the Ptolemies uh, to the south. Uh, maybe the best known example is uh, Jesus, of course, and at, in the upper room, John 13 and verse 18, the Last Supper, and, uh, and Judas. John 13 and verse 18. And he says, uh, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. So Jesus clearly has Psalm 41 in his mind. He quotes it. He's quoting Psalm 41 on this night that he's uh, allowing himself to be betrayed, knowing that, uh, that Judas is the one. And um, he, he tells me in verse 21, one of you will betray me. Uh, They want to know who it is, and he says it's the one for whom I shall dip, or I have dipped, or I shall dip the morsel and given it to him. When he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And he tells him, what you do, do quickly. And he's pinpointing here for Judas's sake, he says, look, I know who you are. I know what you're about to do. And he identifies Judas as the one, as the traitor. With the, uh, with the morsel. Nobody else at the table is even aware of it. They just had some assumptions. Well, he's the treasurer. He must be going out to buy something. He's going to go give money to the poor. He's going to do whatever. You know, they, just, they don't pay much attention. The other deacons don't exactly know what the treasurer is doing. They just know uh, they're, they're busy and they do a lot. And, and they're just happy to not be the treasurer. <laughs> All right. So that happens too. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. And what I love there, just mark that spot. If, if, you're, not, if you're not opposed to putting marks in your Bible, um, it's okay. I'll g- give you permission. You're not adding to the Word of God. You're not subject to a curse. You can put a mark in your Bible between verse 30 and verse 31 of John 13. Because everything in verse 31 and beyond is the powerful upper room and, and walk to the garden discourse. It is the preview of the church age. It is mystery doctrine that Jesus gives them on a night they are not ready for it. But it's his last night to give it. And he tells them, he says, you're not going to understand any of this until the Holy Spirit comes. And he says, oh, by the way, the Holy Spirit's coming. And they didn't understand that either. (laughs) All right. But this message, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, the high priestly prayer of chapter 17, that segment of the gospel of John is crucial for church-age believers. I recommend, I think it's the content of the Great Commission. I believe that if you get somebody saved tomorrow, you take them to that portion of the Gospel of John and you give them the overview from 13 to 17 and you will make them into a disciple as per the Great Commission of Matthew 28. And so here we have this, uh, this betrayal. All right. Every witness was also killed. Back to Jeremiah now. Every witness was also killed. The Jew first and also the Greek, or the Chaldean in this case. The Jew first and also the Chaldean. All the uh, witnesses have to be liquidated. 
in order to keep the assassination secret as long as possible. And commentators are puzzled, and I don't know why they're puzzled, just that's what commentators do, I suppose. They, um, they write what they think, and then they write what they don't know, and then um, sometimes it's interesting to me, especially when the text gives us insight into motivation. Uh, verse 4 is very precise, that even to the next day after the killing of Gedaliah, no one knew about it. That the objective appears to be secrecy. The objective appears to be getting away with it. Covering the tracks, plundering what you can that night, assembling the uh, hostages you're going to take with you, and then preparing to exit back to Ammon. Remember, it was the king of Ammon that, that funded this assassination, as we looked at a week ago. And so uh, with the, uh, the murder of the witnesses in verse 3, and stressing that the... Uh, Keeping it unknown is the objective there in verse 4. In order to keep the assassination secret as long as possible. And everything seems great until, you know, you're, uh, you're loaded up at the gate ready to leave and, and here come 80 people passing through town. Wow, here's more eyewitnesses. What do we do now? All right. And uh, so these guys are going to have to be dealt with also. Before he could make his getaway, Ishmael was confronted with 80 more eyewitnesses. And these guys are something else. Uh, I don't know what to do with these guys, but we can look at them. Uh, They're pilgrims. They're bringing sacrifices. They're taking grain offerings to a temple that's not there anymore. They They seem to be very religious, but they're coming from some idolatry centers from what used to be the northern kingdom of Israel from Shechem and Shiloh and Shamaria, okay, which we usually call Samaria, but I'm going to call it Shamaria today just to keep it with the themes of, uh, of uh, the chapter. And besides, it's spelled with a sh anyway. Explain to me why we've been calling it Samaria all these years. But there it is. So 80 men, the number 80, by the way, starts with a sh. 80 men came from Shechem, from Shiloh and from Shamaria, and they are shaved, their beards shaved off, and their clothes torn, and their bodies gashed. Well, that'll impress God. <laughs> yeah, just make a bunch of marks. Cut yourself all up. De- prove to God how serious you are with, uh, with a pagan practice. In fact, God's not impressed. God told you not to do that. Their bodies gashed, having grain offerings and incense in their hands to bring to the house of the Lord, which we saw destroyed two chapters ago. <laughs> All right, you're a little late. And they knew that. I mean, everybody knows that. So, what are they doing? So, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, went out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he went. Isn't it interesting? You get these snakes. They can turn the tears on like that. They, they can just, they can act like, man, they're right there with you. They're crying with you. Oh, praise the Lord, you know. Amen, brother. And they're, they're just, they act like they're on your side. And uh, says, come on in. <laughs> As he met them, uh, he said to them, come to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. I want you to come in and meet Gedaliah, okay? Which technically is not a lie. Technically, Gedaliah is dead and you're about to be dead, so come on in. <laughs> I want you to meet Gedaliah. 
and he does. So uh, he, it turned out that as soon as they came inside the city, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the men that were with him slaughtered them and cast them into the cistern. Another massacre to cover up the earlier massacre, right? Keep in mind, every time you try to cover up an earlier sin, you end up with bigger sins. Okay, David trying to cover up his adultery, and what does he do? Murder. And, and, you, and it just, you're covering up and you're covering up, and now you've got to cover up the cover-up. I mean, lying gets tiresome after a while. Not to mention all the murder. And then you've got to hide the bodies. Oh, it's just horrible. All right, well, as we're going down through verse 9 here, and we see the cistern, this is the pit where uh, they're all put here. Uh, Ten of these 80 guys actually can save their lives or try to by bargaining. In verse 8, Ten men who were found among them said to Ishmael, Do not put us to death, for we have stores of wheat, barley, oil, and honey hidden in the field. So he refrained and did not put them to death along with their companions. I think he put them to death later once he got the, uh, the supplies from the field. But as for the cistern where Ishmael had cast all the corpses of the men, whom he had struck down because of Gedaliah. It was the one that King Asa had made on account of Basha, king of Israel. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, filled it with the slain. And so this is uh, where he's hiding all the bodies from both massacres. All right, like I said, this is kind of a, a horrible deal here. Ishmael slaughtered 80... <laughs> The, word, the verb for slaughter, by the way, is another S-H verb. Okay, the verb uh, shakat. And Ishmael has a, starts with the S-H, except for that little yod in front of it. Yishmael. So Ishmael is an S-H kind of guy. And he slaughtered with an S-H kind of verb, shakat. And these 80 is an S-H kind of noun. The shemonim, shaven shlemils, from Shechem, Shiloh, and Shemaria. All right. And we've got a whole paragraph here that's just filled with shh, And that just cracks me up. I can't tell you how much that cracks me up. Because it seems like what, what's happening here is the whole effort on, on uh, Ishmael's part to cover his tracks, to keep everything quiet. Can we just get out of town now? We've got to escape and get back to uh, Ammon. And in, in some respects, these hostages that he takes, these captives, I think is part of the problem. That if he'd have just done his murder and, 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 and gotten out of town, he would have gotten away. But he's slowing down here. He's trying to take some women. He's trying to take some plunder. He's trying to, to score additional wealth. Listening to these ten uh, turncoats also. Oh, you got honey somewhere? You got, you know, it just seems like he's motivated by getting everything he can out of a situation. So it's interesting. All right. Now, the house of the Lord was gone, so it's not clear what these men hoped to achieve. These 80 guys bringing their uh, sacrifices, gashing their bodies, shaving their beards, cutting off the corners of things is prohibited. Their body gashing grief is not permitted under Mosaic law. And you can find this in, in Leviticus 19, verses 27 and 28, Deuteronomy 14 and verse 1. There's other places. In fact, uh, one of the funniest places is when um, Elijah is having his contest on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal because they did a lot of this. 
They were trying so hard to get Baal to send fire down from heaven and, and light the sacrifices, uh, which never happened because there is no Baal. But uh, the, the, the whole process of these prophets included gashing themselves, shedding their own human blood, which I'm, you know, demons must be highly entertained by such silly things. Um, God's not. God's not at all pleased because life is in the blood and blood has significance to the father who's willing to give his only begotten son. And the shedding of blood is to instruct us of the, the price that's paid for our eternal life. So any pagan religion that misuses and abuses blood is, is not, uh, not pleasing in God's sight. So you get with all this body gashing grief. And it's not a display of your devotion. It's not a display of how fervent you are. See, the world will tell you that devotion counts. That if you're fervent, you know, if you're devout, if you're really genuine, and you know, if you're believing a lie, you're believing a lie, no matter how strongly you're holding to it. It's still a lie. So Ishmael hides the evidence for both Mizpah massacres. And it's interesting because the, the cistern where he hides them has a profound historical significance to Judah. And this is where, if, if you're not familiar with Old Testament history, if you're not familiar with the background between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, if you don't understand the dynamic of how this worked, then you miss the significance that obviously was a big deal to Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah points out, you know the, the cistern that he hid all the bodies in? You know what cistern that was? It's the cistern, and he describes it here, in the days of Asa. And so, um, as we see it here, verse 9. As for the cistern where Ishmael had cast all the corpses, notice it was the one that King Asa had made on account of Basha, king of Israel. Man, is there doctrine associated with that? What's that about? What should we learn because of that? Do we need to take the time to go back to 1 Kings chapter 15 and, uh, and read those verses too? What was happening there? Because if we do, if we take the time to do that, you know what we're doing this morning? We're going 300 years back in time. We're going back to uh, King Asa. We're going back to a time when there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom still. We're going back to a time when it was Jew against Jew. And we're going back to uh, mistakes that Asa was making, even though he was a good king. Good kings can do dumb things. So hold your finger there, and let's look at 1 Kings 15. We'll try to not get lost in these details, but I think it is significant. It's significant to Jeremiah when he wrote this chapter, and I think it's something we can learn from here this morning. 1 Kings chapter 15. And uh, in the early verses, we have Abijam. He was a villain. And, um, and then we get to Asa. So let's see here. Verse 8, Abijam slept with his fathers, and uh, they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, became king in his place. So we got kind of a, a context for this, a time setting for this. 
from David to Solomon to Rehoboam to Abijam, now to Asa. We're, we're very early in, in this uh, divided kingdom. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel. So the northern kingdom is still dealing with their first king ever, Jeroboam, right? In his 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel. Asa began to reign as king of Judah. And he reigned 41 years. He had a long reign. He was a good king. We color him, uh, if we have color codes, we color him good king, okay? As opposed to wicked king. His mother's name was Makah, the daughter of Abi Shalom. And uh, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, like David, his father. He was a good king. And I don't want to lose that here this morning because he does some stupid things. And good kings can do stupid things. Good husbands can do stupid things. Good pastors can do stupid things, all right? Um, so he put away the male cult prostitutes. He removed the idols. He uh, removed Makah, his mother. I mean, when you fire your own mother, that tells you you're serious about uh, serving the Lord. Because um, she was not, uh, yeah, she was horrible. Um, she had made a horrid image as an Asherah. And uh, Asa cut down her horrid image and burned it at the brook of Kidron. All right, but there were still some hang-ups. High places were not taken away. So he, he didn't get everything done he wanted to do. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days. So, okay, this seems good. He's off to a good start. Problem is, though, the northern king is now going to wage war against him. And... Um, Verse 16 tells us there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel. So by this time now, remember Asa reigns a long, long time. Jeroboam was already on his, the northern throne for 20 years. Jeroboam dies, now Basha is the king. Basha now wants to wage nor- north against south, right? Why does north always want to invade the south? I, I can't figure that out. But there it is, okay, in this civil war. And uh, so Basha comes down. And notice what he does. Um, He went up against Judah, fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. The first step in the attack is to to put in siege fortifications and cut off any kind of help that that Judah might get from outside. So uh, what does Asa do? Now remember, he's a good king. But look what he does. He took all the silver and the gold which were left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house And he delivered them into the hand of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the the son of Tabraman, the son of Hezion, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus. He's going to plunder the temple, plunder the treasury, and buy his way out of trouble. Because money solves everything, you know. You just have enough and spend it in the right place. So he's going to turn to a Gentile to rescue him. He's not turning to the Lord. He's not calling upon a prophet. He's buying a Gentile army. Specifically here, Ben-Hadad, or Ben-Hadad, the son of the king of Aram who lived in Damascus. Saying, let there be a treaty between you and me as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you a present of silver and gold. Go, break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. You know, and if you're forming schemes and you've got to bribe somebody, you've got to out-bribe the first guy that bribed him, okay? Because Basha had already done that. Well, break that treaty to line up with me. 
So uh, this is what happens. Ben-Hadad listened to the king, uh, to King Asa, sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel and conquered. Look what he conquers. Ejon, Dan, Abel, Bethmachah, and all Chinneroth, besides all the land of Naphtali. He takes a huge chunk out of the northern kingdom here in this process. And so when Basha heard of it, he ceased fortifying Ramah and remained in Terzah. Now he's the one that's surrounded. Now he has to turn to the north. Now he's got to defend himself against the Arameans of Damascus. So verse 22, King Asa made a proclamation to all Judah. None was exempt. And they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Basha had built. And King Asa built with them Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. Here it is. Where did the construction material come about for Mizpah? This was it. Plundering the northern kingdom. Siding with Gentiles against fellow Jews. Building a fortification. Building a cistern, which we see in Jeremiah 41, that becomes the depository for this massacre. And so there's a lot of doctrine that we should glean from this. There's lessons to be learned when we're not trusting in the Lord, when we're using money to solve problems, when we're bargaining with the Gentiles. We have an issue with, uh, with, with someone and we're going to go outside of us to deal with it. Think about how Paul addressed that in Corinthians. We're going to earthly judges to solve disputes between brothers. What are we doing? He says, you've lost before you even start. You've got an issue in the church and you're going to sue Somebody else in the church? You're going to go to a Gentile? You're going to go to an unbelieving judge and try to solve something with with legal action in court? What are you doing? That was Paul's exhortation in in 2 Corinthians. Here's a, a situation between Jews, the northern Jewish kingdom and the southern Jewish kingdom. And, and what's King Asa going to do? He's going to spend the Lord's money plundering the temple to bribe the... Uh, the Arameans of Damascus. Yeah, that'll work. Okay? And sadly, it does work. And look at the cost that's paid. Look at the Jews that die. The northern kingdom that lost that territory. So is it a victory or is it a defeat? The Apostle Paul says it's a defeat. Even engaging the activity is a defeat because you're using the wrong method. You're doing the wrong thing. Anyway, um, so there it is. More history on that. Then the attempt to capture and plunder. uh, More questions than answers really here in verse 10. Ishmael took captive all the remnant of the people who were at Mizpah, the king's daughters and all the people who were left in Mizpah. The scripture doesn't tell us why these girls are still here. I mean, if you think about it, most of the people that were left behind uh, were the people that that weren't wanted in Babylon. Remember Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard? He had taken all away all the people. The hostages were already taken away. Gedaliah was left with just a bunch of rabble, um, vagrants, homeless, uh, the, the poorest of the land. But apparently a collection of harem women, right? The king's daughters. Who are these guys? I mean, girls, okay? And why were they left behind? I suspect, my theory, can't prove it, but I suspect they were part of the um, fringe benefits 
to the Chaldean um, observers. That these, uh, they were designed as spoils of war, plunder, uh, to the Chaldeans here, the, the Chaldean soldiers that were left behind. Anyway, um, the Chaldeans are killed and the king's daughters, the princesses, um, they're going to be carried away. Uh, and all the people who were left in Mizpah, whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, had put under charge of Gedaliah. So uh, Ishmael took them captive and proceeded across over to the sons of Ammon. So he attempts to make his escape, right? So what do you think happens? Does he make it? Okay. <laughs> what happens when you're in a hurry, but then... <laughs> how am I going to say this? Um, probably not. And, and you could have been gone a lot faster until you put women in the car. Okay, there I go. And then, you know, I'm not ready yet. I've got to use the bathroom and all this. I'm possibly I'm reading too much into this. It just seems to me he should have left town in verse 6 or something, right? Uh, but no, now he's got women. I'm sorry, that's not right. And he's not going to make it. See, that's the thing. And God is gracious. So Yohanan to the rescue. Yohanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces that were with him, they heard of all the evil that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had done. Well, how did that word get out? What happened here? How did they hear when everybody was killed to cover the tracks? Well, God knows. Other The prophets know. Jeremiah knows. Where's Jeremiah in this chapter? Have we read about him yet? No, we're not going to. So uh, he hears about it. And uh, so he gathers his forces and they give chase. And my theory holds true. So um, they took all the men and went to fight with Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah. They found him by the great pool that is in Gibeon. So uh, the, the group of men that's only men, the soldiers are faster and they catch this group. That's my theory anyway. Now, as soon as all the people who were with Ishmael saw Yohanan, the son of Korea, and the commanders of the forces that were with him, they were glad. And so the people whom Ishmael had taken captive from Mizpah, they turned around, they came back and went to Yohanan, the son of Korea. And so they spin, they run, they run back to the, to the army that's chasing them. And so then Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, escaped from Yohanan with eight men and went to the sons of Ammon. So he lost two men in the whole process here. Two killed in the process of accomplishing his mission. And uh, he gets to return back to Ammon. He doesn't get the plunder. He doesn't get the wealth. He doesn't get the girls. He doesn't get all the other plunder. But at least he saves his neck, which ultimately is the prime objective that most folks have. So he's going to save his own neck here. And they went to the sons of Ammon. And so there we have it. And that's the last that we see of Ishmael. He disappears from the Old Testament at this point. All right, so Ishmael took captives from the remnant and attempted his escape to Ammon. What happens next? Well, Yohanan gives chase. And why was Yohanan missing anyway in the first 10 verses? Where was he? Yohanan's absence is not explained, but he does learn of the Mizpah massacres in time to give chase and to rescue Ishmael's captives. And how does he hear this? I think Jeremiah was with him. 
Not stated, we don't know. But somehow he hears. Um, now, let me go back on that. I don't think Jeremiah was with him. I think Jeremiah was elsewhere. We, we're going to see Jeremiah in chapter 42. Yohanan knows how to reach him. He knows where to find him. But he's nowhere in this chapter. Likewise, uh, Jeremiah's absence is not explained. Jeremiah should be with Gedaliah at Mizpah, but he's not there. Why not? What happened between chapter 40 and 41, whereby, you know, at the end of chapter 40, it sure seemed like Jeremiah was going to go hang out with Gedaliah at Mizpah. Well, something happened in the meantime. And besides, up to a year has gone by by now anyway. It's in the seventh month, but it's likely the seventh month of the year after the destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, in the time frame there from between verse four, uh, chapter 40 and chapter 41. Was he with the Jews with Gedaliah in verse 3? No, because they were all killed. Was he with the remnant of people? Was he one of the captives in verse 10? He's not mentioned. He's not referenced anyway until chapter 42 and verse 2. This chapter, as well as chapter 48 and chapter 52, there's only three chapters in the whole book that Jeremiah is absent. He's not even mentioned by name. Not referenced at all anywhere in this chapter. So it's curious. Ishmael and eight men from his band, they're going to escape to Ammon. So at the cost of two dead soldiers, he makes it back. Remember, he came with ten, he leaves with eight. And they make it back safely. Now, uh, Yohanan's the one with the trouble. Yohanan's the one with a bunch of women and not sure what he's supposed to do next. Because he also has a dead governor. Okay? He's sitting here. He is in custody of the Mizpah plunder. But he's not the one that killed Gedaliah. <laughs> right? You know, if, if you're at a murder scene and you've got the smoking gun in your hand, it's reasonable that a police officer might think you're the one that did the murder. Okay? So if you're at an assassination scene and you've got the, the harem, okay, you've got custody of the king's daughters and the other survivors, that's not going to look good. So theory is, well, we've got to run to Egypt. Let's just get out of town. Let's hide. So um, Yohanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces that were with him took from Mizpah all the remnant of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, after he had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. That is, the men who were soldiers, the women, the children, the eunuchs, whom he had brought back from Gibeon. That was the ambush when he rescued the hostages. So they went and stayed in, you ever heard of this place? Probably not. Garuth Chimham, or Himham. Chimham, we'll give it the Hebrew. Garuth Kimham. You ever heard of that place? No? Well, more Old Testament history. All right, just like the, just like the cistern has significance. Garuth Himham has significance. Kimham, I'm sorry. It's nearby Bethlehem. It is, uh, it is off the books. It's not a part of the regular census. It's not taxed. It's not a part of, of uh, the tribe of Judah any longer. It's nearby Bethlehem, but it was gifted to a hero. And it now is a place of refuge. It is now a, uh, a dwelling place. In other words, it's a good hideout. And this is where he goes. 
Geruth Kimham. And it's beside Bethlehem in order to proceed to Egypt. In other words, it's a hideout. It's a, it's a place where we can uh, situate, we can gather supplies, and we can plan our flight to Egypt. Because clearly, an escape from Bethlehem to Egypt has some kind of significance. <laughs> Isn't Bible study fun? Isn't it great to compare Scripture to Scripture? And to see previews and to see foreshadowings and to see um, the interconnection of different things. So, um, in order to proceed to Egypt, the chapter ends then, because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them, since Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had struck down Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had appointed over the land. The governor's dad, and regardless of who gets blamed for it, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come back and just kill everybody. If, if, if we can't behave and, and be, be good subjects uh, obeying the governor, well, then there's no reason for us to be here. Nebuchadnezzar will just come and wipe us all out. And they know that. That's, that's how things work in the ancient world. So Yohanan leads the rescued remnant to an obscure settlement, a place called Geruth Kimham, and began preparations for a retreat to Egypt. And if you want background on this, again, you're going to have to do some work with it. In 2 Samuel 19, in 1 Kings 2, 7, there's a lodging place. That's, Geruth speaks of a lodging place or a habitation. A Geruth is, a, is a, a lodging place. Why not? Call it lodging place. Okay? And, um, you know, it, it's not your permanent dwelling, but it's where you get away from it all. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a retreat. Okay? It's, uh, it's a lake house or a cabin or just, it's, it's a lodging place. All right? And it's yours. And it's off the books. And it's, uh, I think it's tax-free. That, that tended to be offered in the ancient world. Okay? Saul had offered a uh, tax exemption to whoever it was that would kill Goliath. And there's, uh, there's other things that are spoken of here, not just in the Scripture, but Josephus writes about this as well. Writes about this hiding place, this retreat. Assigned to the son of Barzillai the Gileadite. All right, so our last side trip for the morning, 2 Samuel 19. And now we're going back even further in time. Because now we're going back to the days of David. Second Samuel 19. And how can God do something hundreds of years ahead of time to prepare for something else that's going to happen hundreds of years later? Oh, yeah, that's right. He's God. Okay. And he does this a lot. He's not bound by space and time, and he's genius in the things that he does. And he prepares things long before they're even needed, long before, in fact, so much time goes by, people even forget about it. Oh, yeah, that's why he did that. It's beautiful to see how these things happen. So in uh, 2 Samuel 19, what's happening in this chapter? Well, um, bad things are happening here. Um, David's lost his throne. He's been betrayed. Ahithophel's betrayed him. Absalom's taken the throne. David's had to flee. Um, he's uh, possibly going to be able to return now. He's going to get word that Absalom's dead, which should make him happy, but he doesn't. He's sorry for the, the death of his son. 
and some other things are happening here. Um, but Second Samuel 19, verses 31 through 40, some allies approach. And let's see here, verse uh, 31. Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim, and he went to the Jordan with the king to escort him over the Jordan. Now Barzillai was very old. Now it's interesting, I mean, you, everybody wants to support a winner, right? You know, if a president is taking office, you want to be there, you want to be a part of the, or, the, the inauguration, you want to, you know, hey, let me, uh, let me cross the Jordan here with you, and we'll help you get back on your throne, and Anyway, there's other rebellions that are happening here too. Anyway, Barzillai is very old, being 80 years old. He had sustained the king while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very great man. He provided some of the rescue funds and some of the provision. And the king said to Barzillai, you cross over with me and I will sustain you in Jerusalem with me. But Barzillai said to the king, how long have I yet to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am now 80 years old. Can I distinguish between good and bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? In other words, I'm a little old and forgetful. I'm not going to be much help to you. And I won't even enjoy the tasty food you give me. Um, (laughs) Can I hear any more the voice of singing men and women? I'm not going to enjoy your parties. I'm I'm going to be in bed by the time the inauguration ball starts. Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant would merely cross over the Jordan with the king... Uh, why would the king compensate me with this reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near my, the grave of my father and my mother. However, here is your servant, Kimham. Let him cross over with my lord, the king, and do for him what is good in your sight. And so whether this is his son, his grandson, his servant, whatever the relationship is here, Kimham receives the blessing that Barzillai was entitled to. Whatever is good in your sight. Um, so the people crossed over, and so um, the king, verse 40, uh, see verse 39, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, returned to his place. He went to, Gil- to Gilgal, and Kimcam went with him, and all the people of Judah, and half the people of Israel accompanied the king. And uh, in that. The last reference we have is 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 7. When uh, David is getting ready to pass the baton to Solomon. And uh, they're handling the, uh, all the details. You know, uh, kind of those father-son talks. Like, you know, after I'm gone, you know, you've got to take care of this. After I'm gone, you've got to take care of that. You know, uh, this guy's got to live, that guy's got to die. You know, those kind of things. My dad and I are having these kind of talks right now. So, um, anyway, uh, in verse 5, he says, all right, here's Joab. We're going to have to deal with him. Do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. Make sure Joab doesn't die of old age. Uh, In verse 7, but show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite. Sons, plural. In other words, there's a clan in view here. Not just Kimham, the person, but the clan who eat at your table, for they assisted me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And so they eat at your table. All right? In other words, the, uh, the housing allowance or the food allowance, the commissary, comes straight from the king of everything that feeds this clan. 
You know, it's like having a, an HEB gift card and you use it whenever you want. And you're not paying those bills because it's coming from the budget of, of whatever. Okay, the, the, the governor of Texas is it's coming out of his budget. And all of your groceries are taken care of. And this is what uh, Kim, Cam, Kim Ham gets and his clan and this hideout. And so this is the, the venue then that uh, Yohanan has selected in order to stage the escape to Egypt. Now, we'll come back next week and we'll have to deal with what happens next. Because before he goes to Egypt, one of the smartest guys in any of these chapters, maybe, um, says, all right, before we go to Egypt, let's stop and inquire of the Lord first. Okay? Hey, here's a concept. Let's pray about it. And let's talk to Jeremiah and see what to do. And he knows where to find Jeremiah. So next week we'll get into chapter 42 and um, Yohanan is able to send and they go and they, they, they appear before Jeremiah. And so I won't give it away, but it's, uh, the chapter starts off pretty well. Okay, I give it away. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Father, I thank you for this morning. And, and uh, it's really, it's a simple chapter. The assassin kills everybody and makes a run for it and doesn't make it. And there it is. But there's so much history behind all of this. There's so many details that fall into place. There's parallels with David. There's parallels with Jesus. There's so many things, Father. So much depth to pour into. And I pray that you would equip us with these things, Father. In this format, we're getting the big picture. We're getting the overall um, stories. But then we have other classes during the week where we go into more detail and we slow it down. And I thank you for that. I thank you for the privilege that it is to study to show ourselves approved. Father, we are constantly to be coming before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so, Father, I pray for this message and this entire series to be a blessing that we might be built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.